Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this wonderful section of scripture that we're going to look at. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go through seeing your wonderful grace message. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Isaiah is chapter 61. This is so full of God's grace and his mercy. It's just an amazing thing. You know, over the years, I've heard so many people say, well, I don't read the, New the Old Testament because God is angry and mean all the time. And I'm going... I think you might want to read it once in a while, because uh, this is just one of many places where God's great grace is, is shown in very strong ways. So starting at verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, the open, and open the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of our Lord, that he might be glorified. This scripture, in, according to Luke chapter 4, was what Jesus spoke in the synagogue. He started out with verse 1 and he ended after one third of the second verse and he said to the people this day has this prophecy been fulfilled. Alright so basically he was saying this is a messianic prophecy. Alright he's saying that he was that person. So we want to kind of look at this. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord hath appointed me to preach good tidings. Jesus' goal was to preach good tidings, good news, the gospel. That God is going to save mankind. And this is the great thing. We've said this over and over. What sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is that God does the work. Every other religion is based on works whether it's reincarnation where you just keep coming back until you try to get it right, which you never do, which isn't true, or I hope my good outweighs my bad, you know, which is what most religions are all about, or there's religions out there that say don't even worry about it, there's nothing after this life anyway. All right? Those are the three major arguments that religion makes. And God came in the form of Jesus Christ in the flesh to die for our sins so that he could pay for our sins. And that all we have to do is accept the gift. And if you don't believe me, you can look around in the other religions, and if you do that, just spend as much time in the Bible as you do in the other religions. Otherwise, you'll end up confused. But just believe me, I've studied them over the years. Every religion is based on works. You know, you go to a, to a Muslim and say, you know, what do you got to do to get to heaven? I don't know. I hope, I hope I'm good enough. Most Catholics, you talk to them. What do you, you know, how do you get to heaven? Well, I hope I've asked, you know, had enough penance and, and had enough good. You go to most Jews in this day, they'll say the same thing. I hope my good outweighs my bad. Everything about religion is try to please God. In Christianity, it's we can't please him. He does the work. Now, once he comes in us, then he gives us the ability to do what's right and takes pleasure in what we do, but we still aren't getting more love from him. We're not getting more. He doesn't like us more after we're saved than he did before we're saved. He doesn't say, I love you more because now you're saved. He doesn't go, I like you more because you're saved. He is going to be pleased with us because of what he does through us, but he's not loving us anymore. He loved us enough to die for us. How much more could he love us? And this is what Jesus said, I've come to preach good news unto the meek. Now, meek is an interesting word uh, because most people in our day think of a meek person as a mousy pushover. That is not what meekness is in the Bible. Meekness is strength under control. Right? The statement about Moses is that he was the meekest man alive. And if you study the life of Moses, you uh, kind of know that he was a hot-headed, tempered, hot-tempered man at times, especially before he got saved, you know, the burning bush got saved. You know, he murdered a man, he, 
you know, got mad at the people on several occasions. Got so mad at him that he did, you know, he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And God says, because of that, you're not going into the promised land. But yet God said, for the most part, he kept his temper under check. You know, he had it under control. Meekness. He says, I pro- proclaim to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. How many times do we end up with a broken heart before God? And this broken heart literally is a crushed, destroyed, and instead of heart, we would say spirit. The innermost being of me. Not just, not that I'm just sad, but I have been crushed all the way down to my core. And there are times when that will happen, and God says, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted. Those that have been crushed, I've come to lift up. Those who have need that kind of help, I'm there to, to reach out to. And you know, this is the good news. God has come to deliver. And it is wonderful when you, when you share and you, you listen to people's testimony about how God sometimes has just taken and totally changed their life overnight. God is the one that can deliver. He is the one that can give us joy. He's the one that can give us peace. He gives us peace that passes understanding. When everything says, I I have no reason to be peaceful, and God still gives me peace. When I just have faith in God that God is in control, that gives me a lot of strength in and of itself. doesn't mean I'm going to like everything that God does. And I've got to be able to understand that God is going to do things that I may not like. And he's going to do a lot of things that I don't like. But I'm not God. And this is the great thing we have to understand. When we look at our life, and we look at what God allows into our life, the one thing we have to understand, there's one big truth. There's one God, and we're not him. <laughs> All right? And the more we can hold on to that thought, the better. Because we like to be in control of our life, we think. What is the big problem with all this COVID-19 problem is people are finding out they're not in control of their life in any way, shape, or form. The government thinks it's in control, and they're not in control. You know, being in control is an illusion. And it's an illusion that we try hard to keep. Even as Christians sometimes, we will try hard to make myself think that I'm in control. Life becomes a lot easier when I say, God, you're in control, just guide and lead me. And here he sees Jesus says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. And then he says, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open prisons to them that are bound. We, in our sins, are captives. We're POWs. It was what... Uh, Dale Tackett said in the Truth Project. You know, people that are captive to sin have no choice but to sin. They have no choice but to live the way they are because they do not have the power within them to reject their sin. Whatever that sin might be. When God comes in, you can have victory over those sins. And it's amazing how fast victory can come. You know, just challenge God. Many people have asked the prayer, God, at the rock bottom, if you are really there, come to me. And you know what God does? If you mean it, he will come and rescue you. He will come and show them, just as you were saying, sir, they challenged you at the, you know, set free. Challenge God. God, prove to me that you're real. And if you're looking and you're listening and you really will listen to him, he will prove that he's real over and over and over again. And this is what he says, I've set cat liberty. Liberty is the freedom to do what you want to do. Now, it also has an implication that we do what we're supposed to do. All right? It doesn't mean I can just go out and sin all I want. It means I have the freedom to do what it is I'm supposed to do. And Jesus said, I have set your captives, your POWs, free. Think about what that means. You are a prisoner, a slave to sin, and God comes along and says, I'm freeing you. 
I'm taking the shackles off you. I'm giving you freedom. I'm giving you joy. And if that wasn't enough, he says, I'm opening up the prison. If you don't understand POW, I'm opening up the prison. I can tell you one thing. Out of the prison, these guys get very excited when they get to, even within one year, but they get down to that month and one week and they get to, to one day. Those guys are excited to get out of the prison. Why? Because in prison, they're told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. They're told how many books they can have, how many records they can have, how many CDs they can have, how much food they can have in their locker. They are looking forward to having the freedom of not being in prison. Do we realize what God has done for us? He is taking the captivity of sin away from us. Through open the doors and say, go out, walk into freedom. This was what Jesus did by going to the cross. He rescues us. And I think sometimes we tend to forget that, especially as longer we walk with God, we kind of forget what we were released from. And it's very important that we keep this in mind. God, you have released me from captivity. And the problem is, even if we've been walking for God for decades, we still have sins that are, have us bound up that we need God to come in and unshackle us from. Maybe they're not real big ones. Maybe they are. But you know, when you're shackled, anything's a big, big problem. You're, you're, you're wearing you know, leg and, and feet irons and you're shackled together, any, any little problem is a big problem. And God says, I'm ready to take that away from you. All he wants us to do is say, God, deliver. He's standing right there. He says, I got the key. And what's worse is how many, he's probably already taken the shackles off and we don't even act like they're off. How many times have he, we've been freed and we live as if we're still in bondage? He has opened the gate to the prison and we're still living in the prison when we could walk out. Why? Well, probably because we're just happy with what you know, we understand where we're at and we're, we're, we're just saying, okay, God, I'm, I'll just live with what I've got. And God says, there's a, there's a field out there. <laughs> there's, there's open land out there. Why do you want to be caged? And yet so often we stay in that cage. And Jesus says, I have given you freedom. I have given you liberty. He came to die so that God could forgive us. What a beautiful picture that we have. And we all tend to live in captivity in some area of our life. It's not, it's not hard to do. It's really easy to do, to stay captive. Why? Because our mind hasn't been changed. Many times these guys get out of prison, and they're still prisoners in their mind. They're outside. They're free. They can do what they want. But they're still so used to being told what to do and that they are looking for somebody to do it. And I've actually had people tell me they want to you know, recommit so they can go back into prison because they can't handle the freedom. Oftentimes we as Christians do the same thing. We stay a prisoner. God, I just can't handle that freedom. I, I, know, I, know, this, I know this life of bondage. And it's a sad place to be because God's got freedom for us if we just seek it. And then it says he, in verse 2, it starts with, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. This is what Jesus told the people when he came, he was proclaiming the acceptable year, the pleasant year of the Lord. Before Jesus came, the Jews were in bondage. You had to go to the temple three times a year to offer your sacrifices, one time a year for your sin sacrifice. And between times, you hoped you didn't do so much bad to overcome the sin sacrifice. What a way to live. You know, not knowing whether you were covered or not. And Jesus says, this is over. I have completed the sacrifice. We are forgiven. We have to get hold of this. We are forgiven as his children. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve punishment. I repent for my sins. Come into my life. He comes into us, and he frees us and says, you've got nothing but open area in front of you. And we need to get our minds changed to match his. 
That's why in Romans 12, 2, it says that we are changed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God. How do we get a new mind? We study the word. We go into the word. We don't watch the television. We don't watch the psychologist on television or go to the psychologist and sociologist that tell us if you just understand why you, why you, who you are, you'll be okay. Well, in one sense, that's true. I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. God has forgiven me. I don't need to understand anything more about it. Because Jesus says, I put your, your sins underneath the blood. They're in the, the deepest sea. They're, spread, they're separated as far as the east is from the west, which is a long ways. And God has declared that he will not remember them. Now, I've heard preachers try to explain that away. They go, well, God can't forget anything. You're right, he can't accept what he says he's going to. He, had a, he has a divine royal fiat or order that says, when I forgive your sins, they are forgotten. God is not going to remind us in a heat of argument, which he's not going to argue with us anyway. He's not going to remind us about all the sin that we've done. Because he says, it is forgiven. Jesus on the cross said, it is forgiven finished. And that Greek word means it is paid for. At the bottom of your invoice it would say paid in full and that's the word he used on the cross. Sin's debt was paid in full. We don't have to go out and try to pay, uh, make our own payment for it. We don't have to prove to God that we're sorry for it. It is paid in full. The only thing that is not forgivable is to reject Jesus Christ. If we reject Jesus Christ, we will go to hell because we rejected the sacrifice. We accept him, our debt is paid in full. He has freed us from all the bondages. He has taken the chains off. And I hope that many of us have known what it's like to have the chains removed. Whatever, the, whatever your chains were. When I got saved, mine was anger and, and a temper. And God unshackled that and took it away. For some people, it's their drugs and alcohol. For some people, it's their lascivious lifestyle. Some people, it is the fact that they couldn't tell the truth that their life depended on it, and God takes that away from them. What is it that God will take away? Whatever the worst thing is for you. And then you'll slowly take everything else away. Now, I used to be kind of jealous when God, when I'd see somebody has had their whole life changed overnight. But you know, one of the things I've learned about most of those people they become legalists in many cases. It was so easy for me. How come you're having so much trouble getting, getting over all your problems? And you feel like saying, well, what about all your other problems? God took a lot away from you, but you still have a lot of problems in your life. You know, so we want to be careful. We're special, so God takes more time with us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue. Maybe, maybe that's exactly what it is. I never thought about that. <laughs> I, you know, I've wondered many times, because mine has been one slow, long period. I mean, he took one big thing out of my life, and I'm glad he did. My temper would have put me in prison for, for, for assault and or murder at some point in my life, because it was that bad. So God took a big thing out of my life. But he's taken a long time to get all the rest of the stuff out. You know, and they're still not out. <laughs> but you know, in one sense, it's good to, that he takes his time and it goes slow, because it does give us that appreciation that God is at work in his own time. He's making it to learn patience. He's working. He's working. He doesn't give up. And this is the beautiful thing. Jesus releases us. We have to claim it. We have to get our mindset that we are forgiven. This is why we did that entire series on who we are in Christ. 53 things that happened to us the moment we're saved. It took us over a year to get it done. Because we took a year, a, 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 a message on each one of those. Do we really truly begin to understand who we are in Christ? That we're forgiven, we're free, we're children of God, we have been adopted, we have all the riches of Christ, we have the Spirit. Over and over, the things that He has given to us, that we need to really understand who we are. Because Satan's going to lie to us. He's going to tell us that we're miserable, awful, terrible people. And our experience, we're going to say, yes, I agree with you. But if we start believing God's word, 
We can say, Satan, I know what you're saying is true, but God says I'm perfect. God says I'm redeemed. God says I'm sanctified. I'm his child. So you're lying to me. We need to be able to get to the attitude that we say, God, God I'm going to believe you, and Satan, I am not going to believe you. It takes time. It takes the washing of our mind and the total renewing of our mind. And it also takes not filling it with all the garbage of the world all over again. Many of us have trouble getting renewed in our mind because we turn around and we watch, all the, we watch and listen to all the world stuff and fill it back up with the world. God, God comes out and washes it up and says, okay, you're clean, and we go back out and play in the pigsty. And God, I'm not clean anymore. He goes, okay, let's give you another bath and clean everything up again. And we run right back out to the pigsty and, and roll around in the pigsty again. You know, and we keep doing that. And then there comes that moment where it dawns on us that I don't have to go back to the pigsty, at least in this area. I can stay clean in some area of my life because my mind is starting to be transformed, metamorphed just as the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And I don't know if you realize what happens to a caterpillar. When it goes into a cocoon, it literally disintegrates. And its DNA is totally changed and it comes out a brand new creature. All the way down to the very DNA level. And that is what God says for us. We were fallen people with a sin nature ruling over us and not, and not having anything to do with it. We are now transformed people, totally changed with him that can have victory over sin because we're brand new. And we need to really grab hold of it. We, when we are in Christ, are brand new. Brand new creatures. We are not the same as we were the day before or even the minute before we asked him to come. We are new. It may take us decades to get to live in that newness, but, you know, we need to do it. And how does most of that happen? By struggles. The very thing we don't want in our life is what God uses to reveal our new life. He puts struggles in us. Now, when you're a new Christian, the struggles are somewhat easy, but they're not easy to you because you're a new Christian. They're hard struggles. You'll look back at them and go, wow, I used to think that was a problem. I, you know, God, I... Can I go back to those problems again? <laughs> can, can I go back to that? Those aren't problems. <laughs> and God says, no, you're no longer a new Christian. It's time for you to live up. Put on your big boy, big girl pants and live with the new, with the new trials coming your way. You know, the sad thing is he keeps giving us new trials <laughs> that are commensurate with where we're at. Now, the more we grow into him, the more our problems will be equal to where we are with him. Because he says, will you trust me in this area? And I've looked at people and going, wow, God, I'm sure glad you don't ask me to put, go through what they're going. God says, just wait. Just wait. You may get there someday. And we need to understand that. When we look at somebody who's grumbling and complaining about their problems, we go, what are they grumbling and complaining about those simple problems? They're not simple problems to them. They're new Christians. They're, they're young in that area. This is a new problem to them. It may seem simple to us, but it's not simple to them. You know, and we may look at somebody else and go, oh my goodness, I don't, you know, God, don't ever call me to do that. And he says, not yet. But when he does, he'll give us the grace and the strength to get through it. All questions and all tests have to be a test. And they have to be equal to what you understand and know. The more we get to know God, the more the harder our test will get. And I've had people, well, that just means I won't get to know God any better. I'm going, I think God will make you uh, get tested on what you should have known. Okay, God, I'm not reading my Bible. I'm not going to church because the more I know, the more I'm accountable for. I think God says you, you're going to be accountable for what you should have known. So you better prepare for the test. <laughs> A lot better than going in unprepared. Uh, so we want to be able to look at this. He proclaims the acceptable day. And it says, the day of vengeance of our God. God will bring vengeance to this world. He does bring justice. Maybe not in the time we want it. 
Not in the time we expect. David all through the psalm says, God, why, why are the wicked getting away with this? You know, it's, you know, God, you're not fair. They're getting away with things. And God says, just wait. God has not closed his books. When he closes his books, everything will be made right. Sometimes it's in our lifetime. I've seen people that have made life miserable for, for Christians and, and Christian leaders, and they have been judged and judged harsh. It seems that other people never seem to go through any problems. But there's going to come a time when they stand before God at the white throne judgment, and God's going to say, now the books are open. Now you will pay for, the, pay for what you've done. God always closes the books in his time. And the greatest example of this that I've heard is the farmer. The farmer buys his land, he plows the land. If he closed his books after he plowed the land, he'd be losing money because he hasn't made anything. He plants this, he fertilizes the ground and plants the seed. If he cl tried to close his books then, he would say, I'm nothing but a loser. It's cost me nothing. He waits for months for things to come up and says, if he closed his books then, there'd be no reward. After the harvest, he closes his books, and then he can say, I got a reward or I didn't get a reward. This is where God is with us as people. We cannot look at where we are at any point in our life and say, okay, God, I'm a winner or a loser. Because there's times when we think we're a winner, you know, everything's up and God's blessing and, and we're, everything seems to be good. And we wait a couple months and then we're going through the hard trials and we're going, God, this is not fair. I, you know, why is all this happening to me? But when we stand before Jesus at the Bema seat and he says, he takes all of our works and puts them in the fire and pulls out silver, gold, and precious stones and says, here's your reward for eternity. That is when everything will be made worthwhile. When the, when the lost stand before him at the white throne judgment, and he shows them, and a couple, a couple, I guess about a month and a half ago, we were reading in Isaiah where he says, God will, God will even help them. They want, to, they, want to, they want to talk about their good works. He will help them and talk. To, he, will, he will tell them about all their good works. He will declare their good works and say it's not enough. When they go to hell, it's because they are not perfect. Jesus paid for sin. When people that go to hell are going there because they rejected Jesus Christ and the perfection that he gave them. We go to heaven because we accepted Jesus Christ and we're clothed in his righteousness. What a simple truth. And if we could grab onto that, would we be more gentle with people than we are? Because we go, it's all about Jesus. It's all about God. We look at people and go, God, I don't know how you could even love this person. This person says they're a Christian, but God, I don't know. It really doesn't matter. They stand or fall before God. Now, when somebody doesn't live a Christian life, I'm going to treat them more like a non-Christian than a Christian. I'm going to tell them, you know, you need to get right with God, whether it's to get saved or just to get right. Because without him, hell is it. There's going to be a lot of good people in hell. And that's the scary thing. Jesus said many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And you look at his list. They cast out demons. They fed the poor. They went to the prison and visited people. They, gave, they clothed the naked. And they did all the things that Christians are supposed to do. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And the other thing that will surprise us is how, all the bad people that are in heaven. Now, they won't be bad when they're in heaven because they'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But by our judgments on earth, we're looking at them going, how did this person get to heaven? By the grace of God. The same way we did. Because we're only there by the grace of God too. And if it wasn't for his grace, we would be as bad or worse than they are. Because, or we would be self-righteous hypocrites. No matter what, there's a problem, and it's all by God's grace that anybody makes it to heaven. None of us are coming to God saying, God, you are so lucky you have me. <laughs> and God, God just laughs. And I'm sure God does just what we're doing here, laughing. You know, let me show you how, you know, let, you're my child. Let me, let me put you through the ringer a little bit and show you how lucky I am to have you. But you know, I have actually heard people that have that attitude. They may not say those words, but they have that attitude. You know, I am the greatest thing that this church has ever had. You know, and, 
you know, if I wasn't here, this wouldn't happen or that wouldn't happen or, you know, and they'll give this long list or even a short list, you know. Uh, there are people who go, well, if I didn't give my tithes and offering, this church would go under. I go, well, if, if you think that's why you're giving, keep your money and God will provide it other ways. Well, if I was not the one serving, this church would have no problems. Well, you go ahead and not serve and God will raise up new servants in your place. We can never get full of ourselves on any part of this because we are who we are by the grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean we take and say, well, I'm totally worthless, I can't do anything. If you have a gift, accept that gift and use it for God. Don't get proud in it, but also don't get false humility. humility. If you've got a gift, use it. And, and be glad that you're using it. But just don't get proud of it and say, it's all me, and if it wasn't for me being here, you know, this ministry or that ministry wouldn't be done because God's church has existed for 2,000 years and it will exist until the rapture. And it doesn't need any one person other than Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Other than that, every single person is replaceable. Paul was replaceable. Even though he wrote a good chunk of the, of the New Testament, he is replaceable with all kinds of other people. The last part in verse 2 says, And to comfort all that mourn. God is looking for us to be able to go to him and say, God, I am hurting. I am tired. He is not looking for super heroic Christians that never have any problems. Now, part of it is the, the more we walk with him, the more we trust him, the less we're going to have his problems in, in all of this. But every one of us are going to have times when the pressure is heavy and hard. And we're going to say, God, I need comfort. I need to be consoled. And God will do it himself. He'll bring other Christians around. He'll, he'll bring that help and say, here's somebody just to, just to say I love you, to lift you up. We all need people in our lives like that, which is the purpose of the church. The church is a group of like-minded believers and that like-mindedness is that the word of God is true and we're going to love each other and build each other up. My job in the church is not to point fingers at anybody, condemn anybody. My job is to love people, give them the gospel, give them encouragement. And our job, all of ours, is that same job. We're to encourage one another. All of us have had somebody who is trying to encourage us maybe <laughs> and do, does a very bad job on it. But you know, even in that case, take that they probably had the right intention, even though it came along with the wrong words and the wrong way, at least accepted that they probably were trying to do some kind of encouragement. And yes, it can hurt. When somebody goes and they kind of attack you, you know, that's probably not what they were trying to, and then don't get me wrong, there are people that are in the church that aren't Christians that are trying to attack people and tear them down. They're listening to Satan, they're, being, they're attacking people. Don't take them, take them with a grain of salt and find and listen to the people who are really ministering and loving. Because Satan will make sure that the things happen to us to try to drive us out of the church. Now, we're still responsible for our reaction to those, but he will make sure that we get, well, that person, that person didn't call me. They don't love me. You know, they, didn't, they never called me, so... I'm, God, I'm staying away from that church. Nobody in that church loves me because that one person didn't call me. And you, and you kind of laugh, but, but I did that. I got into workaholism. I drifted away from church, and nobody called me to say they missed me. And the next thing you know, I was gone for a year and a half. And blaming them, it was my fault. It was my fault. I recognize it now, but during the time, I blamed them. You know, but it was my fault. And it's always our fault. And Satan is good to get us to blame others. And the blame game is right from the very beginning. Adam and Eve blamed each other. You know, Adam was really wonderful. He blamed, he blamed God and Eve. You know, God, it's your, the, it's your fault. The woman you gave me gave me this food. So he's, he's pointing both ways and said, God, if you just didn't give me this woman, I would never have sinned. And then it was, his, then it was her fault because she gave him, you know, Adam was pretty bold. <laughs> You just blame the serpent. <laughs> you know, but you know, the blame game has gone on forever. God, I have all these problems because. 
you know, I wasn't loved enough. They didn't care enough about me. They didn't call me enough. They didn't send me enough card, cards. God, just this miserable life you put me in, I just had to get into the drugs and alcohol to, to, to mellow out and to chill out so I didn't think about it. So we're still good about blaming God and others. We need to be very careful about this because he says he is the answer to our hard times. We need to go to him and again, God is not worried about our complaints. David proves that in the Psalms over and over again. David complained to God all the time. Moses on several occasions complained to God. Many of the great leaders in the, and men of the Bible and women of the Bible complained to God. You look at Naomi. You know, they were disobedient to God and left the promised land and then complained that God mistreated them. And she comes back and says, don't call me uh, Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, bitter. Because you have mistreated me so bad, God. But yet, she still trained up Ruth to follow the right rules. Ruth was a Moabitess. She didn't know anything about Judaism. How did she learn everything she learned? Had to come from Naomi. So Naomi still was teaching her, even though she had basically turned her back on God. How many times are we as Christians, sometimes we go into a backslidden stage as Christians, and we still do things for God? We still talk about God. We still read our Bible. We may not go to church. We may not do it as much. But I know, I remember when I was away from God for a year and a half, and I don't know that I talked about God more during that period than I did before, but I, I seem to remember it probably because I felt like such a hypocrite. Because every time I told somebody that they needed God, it's like, oh, sure, you haven't even opened your Bible, you've barely prayed, and you haven't been to church. What are you telling them they need God for? Because I knew. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whether you are or not. Because even when we're following him, he's going, well, who are you to be able to talk? You know, that person's smarter. That person's meaner. You know, sometimes we're afraid because we think they're meaner and going to hurt us. And we, we have all these fears in our lives about walking with God and sharing the gospel. And we need to get some boldness. I mean, what is the absolute worst anybody can do to you for, for sharing the gospel message with them? You know, they can almost kill you. Okay? That would be the absolute worst. If they kill you, you get to go to heaven. You know, that should motivate us right there. You know, I'm going to go find the meanest, I'm going to go find the meanest, awfulest person. Maybe they'll kill me and send me to heaven. You know, but do you understand what I'm saying? The things we fear are really something, if we truly understood God's word, are not something to fear. The other thing that people fear about sharing the gospel is that somebody's going to ask them a question they don't know the answer to. And I've told you over and over, that's the best, that's, that's a really good thing. That's the second best thing that can happen to you. I'll tell them, come to church where I come to, then you'll find out the answer. <laughs> or you can even be more bold. I don't know the answer. Can we meet tomorrow or next week? Or I'm going to go find the answer, and I'll have the answer for you. Can we talk again, whatever time frame is, is good? No, I want to. Now you, get, now you get to tell them the gospel twice. And you know what? The best thing that could happen to you is if they, if they don't come to Christ, they ask you another question you don't know the answer to. And you might just want to, if, it's, if it seems like it's ending, you might just want to say, I'm going to go get the answer for that, even if you know the answer. And say, let me go get the answer, and I'll share with you next week or tomorrow. This gives us the opportunity to repeat the gospel to people. People have to hear the gospel message several times before they usually respond to it. I read an article that says people have to hear it 11 to 12 times before they finally respond. And then what they'll do is they'll say, and I heard the gospel for the first time. Which is really funny if you're the one that's given them the gospel several times, you go, oh, so the, the three times I've heard it before don't count. But, you know, but in reality, it probably was the first time they heard it. How many times have you been going through the Bible and all of a sudden the verse just jumps off the page and it's like, God, this verse has never been here before. I've had that happen to me and, I, and I've told you, I kind, of, I kind of play with God. God, when did you add it in there? I know it wasn't there the last, for the last 40 years. When did you put it in here? You know, I know that it was there, but it wasn't time for it to come out. 
And God understands that we need to hear something over and over. How do we know? He keeps repeating it himself. Sometimes when I'm going through these books, I'm going, didn't we just teach this? <laughs> didn't God just tell us this? And the answer is yes. Why? Because God knows that we are thick-headed <laughs> and stubborn. He knows it. So what does he do? He just keeps repeating himself. The patience of God is amazing. It is amazing how patient he is with us and how much he wants us to have patience with one another and how often he wants us to have patience with ourselves. Sometimes that's hard for a lot of people. Having patience for themselves is hard because we get thinking, God, I've been walking with you for so long. I should be here. And God says, why do you think you should be there? Well, because I've been walking with you for so long. And God says, well, then you get there. If you're supposed to be there, get there. But he's not telling us that we're supposed to be there. He's going to move us at his pace. Now, does that mean we stand still and do nothing? If we're standing still and doing nothing, we've got a problem. But if we look at our life and say, God, I am closer to you today than I was yesterday or a weekly. Now, I usually say look back a year because it's real hard to look over a short period of time and see your growth. But God, I'm closer to you today. I make better decisions today than I did a year ago, a decade ago. God, you are working in my life. I see this. And we need to put that distance between us and look and say, God, do I know you? If we're not growing, then we have to look and say, God, do I know you? But if I can look at my life and say, God, I'm making better decisions today than I did last year, a decade ago. And if people are telling you you're growing, then you want to listen to them you know, because they're seeing it. You know, and the example I use is we, we have our kids growing up and we don't realize how fast they're growing up because we see them every day. And then you see your niece or your nephew or your grandchild that you haven't seen in a year or two and it looks like, weren't you just this tall and now you're as tall as me? <laughs> you know, and we, our growth is the same way. We look at ourselves in God and say, God, it doesn't seem like I'm going anywhere. And God says, your decisions are better. Your thinking processes are better. You're, you're growing every day. And again, if you're not growing, then you need to look and say, God, do I know you? Do I truly know you? If I don't have the joy of the Lord, if I don't have his peace, if I'm not making better decisions, if he hasn't taken things out of my life, I need to look and say, God, do I know you? And this is a serious question. You know, I have had so many changes in my life. I know that I know God. And I know many of you in this room are the same way. You know, God has changed who you are. You are very different than you were a year or two years ago. You know, and that is very, gives me confidence that you're no God. Now, you could be faking it, but I don't think so for most of you. <laughs> the Spirit bears witness that you have changed, and it was dramatic enough to say God is doing it. Because when we do it ourselves, we're going to fall. There's going to be a point where our strength says, God, I'm tired of giving up whatever it is we gave up in our strength. Even in the spirit, we may have problems with it, but you know, in our flesh, it will eventually catch up. You know, and this is why when people get off drugs and alcohol, the people who know them are waiting for them to fall down because that's exactly what they've seen them do in the past. And they're going, okay, how long will it be this time? How long will it be this time that you're going to stay off of it? And then when we know God and it becomes permanent, well, we don't even have the desire it's amazing the things that God has taken out of my life that I don't have the desire for that I used to desire. You know, had great desire for certain things, and it's like the desire is gone because he's broken the bondage. The desire is taken away. Now, then he shows me all kinds of other things that the desire is there for. You know, and then he's going to keep doing that because Jeremiah tells us our heart is deceitfully wicked beyond all things. Who can know it? So every time we get rid of something, God says, okay, good. Now hopefully he gives us a little bit of time to enjoy that, but he doesn't always. He sometimes shines the light down a little farther and says, okay, now we've got another thing to work on. We've got another thing to work on. Get that out, there's another thing to work on. And you know, it's really interesting. The longer we walk with God, it's pretty easy to get the big things out, the things everybody sees, you know, because people are seeing it. 
And you're going, God, you know, I don't want to be judged, so how do we get rid of this? Get rid of my temper, get rid of my, my attitude, get rid of my, my lying, get rid of my, you know, whatever it might be. It's pretty easy to get rid of the big things because we're motivated, because people see them. And then God comes and says, I want you to be more forgiven, more forgiving to people, more loving to people. Um, I might be able to pretend to do that, but it's, that, becomes, that becomes our hard attitude, and it says, but usually God will give us somebody somewhat easy to start with, but as we get better at it, and we grow in it, He'll put somebody in there that, God, not that person. No, God, not, 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 you've got to be kidding, God, not that person. You know, and we all know what that is because God's put those people in our lives. Now, just think when you get further along in it, he'll give you somebody that's even worse than the one you're thinking that in right now. You know, harder to love, harder to, harder to be forgiving of. Why? Because... Because God wants us to be more like him with each passing day. And you know, when we really realize how much God has forgiven us, it really should motivate us to forgive others. The, the love that God gives us should motivate us to love others. First John uh, tells us that we love him because he first loved us. We can't even love another person until we recognize the love of God. We can get infatuated, we can have great, great emotional feelings, but we don't truly understand love until we understand love. We can't give love until we know what love is. Once we understand love, it becomes easier to love. Now we love our spouses, I hope. <laughs> we love our children, usually. <laughs> but even with them, we don't go beyond familiar uh, family love until we get to know God and learn unconditional love. I love that person no matter what they do, no matter how they act. Human love is always conditional. I love you because you love me. I love you because I feel good loving you and you, and you make me feel good in some way. That's human love. Our children, unfortunately, grow up so often with conditional love. As long as you are obedient, then I'm going to show you kindness and love. Unconditional love loves them anyway, even if we have to punish them. <laughs> and that's hard. You know, it's hard. When I would have to punish my kids, I learned from my dad. You go away until I'm not mad anymore, and then I can punish you. <laughs> Many times I sat in my room for an hour or two waiting for my dad to come up. Now, he told me to go up and think about what I had done, and all I could think about was the spanking that I was going to get, or what discipline I was going to get. Now, and I know that what he was doing, now I know he was calming down so that he didn't discipline in anger. God never disciplines us in anger. He always loves us. Now, discipline, by definition, must hurt. Otherwise, it's not discipline. How it hurts is going to be different for every individual. God may take something away. He may allow hard times. David, when he had... His sin with Bashi, you know, when he, excuse me, when he numbered the people, God gave him three choices. You know, three choices of discipline. And as a king, he didn't like any of them. He could, he could run for, I think it was nine months or a year, and, and hide from his enemies, just like he had to do with Saul. God said, I can send a plague that will kill thousands of you people for three months, or some other pestilence and battle would be going on for a long period of time. And David said, God, you choose. Uh, I thought, David, I think I would have taken that. Let me run from my enemies for nine months because it was the least, least harmful to his people. But, you know, we see this. God says, I've got great love for you. He goes, I, and then in verse 3, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. All right, so God is going to declare or appoint to those that mourn in Zion that are sad. They're praying in, in, in Zion. And he, this is going to be God that gives it to them. And he says, to give. All right, there's a long list, but who's giving? God. This is who we have to recognize. When we turn our life over to God, he is the one that gives us the blessings. The blessings he gives, beauty for ashes. All right, what are ashes? 
when people would be in deep mourning and sadness and repentance, they would, the Bible will talk about them repenting in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. They'd sit down and pour ashes over their heads to show that they were sorry, repenting. God says, I want to give you beauty. Instead of all this misery, I'm going to give you beauty. And this is talking about hats and turbans. You know, the word for this is your hat and turban beautified. You know, do we really understand that God wants to take away our mourning and bless us? Sometimes we forget this. I know I do often that God wants to give me blessings. After that, he says, the oil of joy for mourning. Oil represents the Holy Spirit. He pours the Holy Spirit with joy over our mourning. Have you ever been in a place where you just go to God and, and you're sad and you're not happy and you turn to God and God puts that joy in your heart? And all of a sudden you walk away and the problem probably isn't even gone, but you're no longer mourning over it. He goes beyond that. He goes, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness or dullness. He gives us praise. It's an interesting thing that everything that God gives us is from him. My joy, my praise, my, my outlook that he's sovereign and in control all comes from him. And the more I trust him, the more I have these things coming in my life. And it's all that he gives us. When people look at us, are they seeing somebody who trusts God completely? That there's joy in us. We have the peace that passes understanding. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are joy, love, peace, long-suffering. Okay? All of these are what God gives us. How do we do this? Just as our memory verse, we start thinking about the things that are pure, the things that are a good report, the things that are of value, and go, God, I'm going to trust you. The more I look at God being in control, the more I can trust him. The more that I trust him, the more that I can relax in him. And this is true of anything. The more you trust somebody, the more you can re relax and let down your guard. If you don't trust somebody, your guard's up all the time, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to keep your, have to keep your guard up every moment. God is saying, I'm your shepherd. I'm the one that, you ca that cares for you better than you can care for yourself. Let down your guard and hide in me. We need to be able to get to this place where we say, God, I fully trust you. Is it an easy thing to do? Nope. Why? Because we take our experience. Nobody has ever been trustworthy completely in our life. Nobody. Even the most trustworthy person you have in your life has let you down at some, in some crucial junction. And we unfortunately take that into our relationship with God. And God says, I am completely trustworthy. And what we need to do is start understanding that. And the more we start to trust him, the more we will relax. And the more we will trust him even further. And this is important. But why does he do this? Is that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. God is not making us strong so that we can be glorified. He's not making us strong so people can point, well, that's a really good Christian. That, that person, you know, they're, they're loving, they're, they're forgiving. You know, look, you know, that's, that's an example of Christianity. That is not why God is making us strong. He is making us strong so that we can point to him and say, I am nothing without Christ. It is important for us to get to that place. I can do nothing without Christ, and I am nothing without Christ. I am a new creation. The Spirit flows and lives in me. The Spirit gives me the fruit because I am connected to Jesus who gives me my nourishment so that I can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And people will be able to then say, now that's what a Christian would go, yes, it's all God. I love it when people go, you know, you're happy a lot. Why, why, why don't you let things get you down? It's all God. Let me tell you about the God who makes, this for, makes it for me. It opens doors. Point back to God. 
and in your own heart, in your own life. Point back to God in your own life. If you find yourself getting proud about how, how good a Christian you are, you better get back to pointing to God and saying, God, without you, I would not be where I'm at. You know, it's an amazing thing how much it's all about God. Because everything's about him, ultimately. He is the king. Now, we as Americans don't understand that. When you have a king, everything is about the king. You're, 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 you're earning money to pay your taxes to the king. You support the king. You, if you truly have a king that you love, you're willing to die for that king. We don't really understand that in our, in our country. We might understand a bit of patriotism, but we still put people in the way of that patriotism and say, well, if I don't like them, I'm getting rid of them. I don't have to put up with a president for more than four years. I don't have to put up with that senator for more than six years. I don't have to put up with that with, uh, representative for more than two years. If I don't like them, I'm going to help get them out. With a king, you don't have that option. You're stuck there as long as they live. You know, and hopefully it's a good king. But God says would honor the king no matter whether they're good or not. When Paul said to pray for the king and to give them honor, the king he was talking about was Nero. Nero was a really nice guy. He was taking Christians, dumping them in oil, putting them on stakes, and lighting them on fire to light his, to light his garden. That is how he lit up the Colosseum. He put a bunch of Christians on, on stakes lit, covered with oil and used them for torches. He was a really nice guy. He was beheading Christians. He was killing Christians. And Paul says, pray for him. Honor him. Too many people will say, well, I'll, I'll honor and, and support a, a good government. It's not what God says. God doesn't say honor them only if they're good. He says honor them because he put them in place. If he didn't want them there, they wouldn't be there. No matter how good or bad they are, they would not be there if God didn't put them there. You know, and we like to think God devoted them. And God says you wouldn't have got, they wouldn't be there if I didn't want them to be they would not be there. So we need to be able to go to God and come to God each time and say, God, I want to know more of you. We sing the, sing the song occasionally, uh, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. I want more of his great love, so rich, so full and free. I want more of Jesus, so I'll give him more of me. The more we want of God, the more we have to give up us. And the more we give ourselves up, the more he comes in and fills us. And the more he fills us, the easier life becomes to trust him. And even when those big problems, you know, and I've kind of made light of it. You know, we look at somebody and say, not that person. But you know, when that person comes along, we're going to be saying, God, I think I'm ready now to be able to show that person love. Couldn't have done it last year. Couldn't have done it 10 years ago. But I'm ready to try and show that person love. Corey Ten Boom had learned a lot about love, and then God, 10, years out, 10 or 20 years after she'd been out of the prison camp, was shown, you need to forgive the guards that were so brutal to you. And her initial reaction was just what every one of us, absolutely not, no way, no how, but God won. We need to learn God always wins. <laughs> you know, when we argue with God, he's going to win. All we do is make life miserable while we're arguing with him. So learn to, learn to surrender. You know, I, I, I'm finally getting there. I, I usually surrender in less than a month nowadays. <laughs> sometimes I'm faster. Sometimes it's very fast. It used to, be, it used to take months and months, years. I, I have a very stubborn streak, as anybody who knows me knows. I have a very stubborn streak. And it, it, it manifested itself toward God in many, in, in many ways. But you know, our, we need to just be able to say, God... I surrender. I want to give you my life. Life is so much simpler when we do. And the sad thing is, the more we fight with God, those around us get hurt in the, same, in the process. And that's the sad thing. For a husband, their family is going to hurt. For anybody else, you have people close to you that are going to hurt when you fight God. Because they're going to get caught, they're going to get caught in the cross currents. You're rejecting God. They're going to get caught. And God says, just surrender. And God never loses the battle. Never. He, he has not lost a battle and never will. 
Satan keeps thinking that God's going to lose a battle. He hasn't, Satan hasn't won one yet. He got kicked out of heaven. God gave grace and mercy to Adam and Eve when he had them fall. All through the scripture, Satan keeps losing. He said God's going to give him seven years to reign on a chain and then send him to hell anyway. It, you know, and then after that, he's going to go, I'm going to let you out one more time, and then I'm going to permanently put you into the lake of fire. What? And he keeps fighting. You, know, he, you would think that he would learn his lesson. He is the ultimate person who won't learn their lesson and keeps fighting and keeps fighting and keeps fighting God. Now, unfortunately, many of us are the same way. It takes us a long time to learn our lesson with God. My challenge for us is let's learn to surrender faster. God, what is it you want me to give up? And say, okay, God, you're going to have to help me. The good news is everything that I give up for God that seems so hard when I'm giving it up, after a year, it's like, why did I ever think this was going to be hard? Why, why was I ever worried about this? And whatever it is that he wants you to give you up, he will give you the strength to give up. You know, whatever it is, whatever you're addicted to, and sin is addictive, whether it's physical addictions of drugs and alcohol, the psychological addictions of, of uh, fornication and adultery or you know, pornography or, or stealing or whatever it is, every sin is addictive. And we always get to the place where when God's saying, get rid of it, uh-uh, God, I, I like it too much. And God says, well, we're going to give it, when you're ready, you're going to give it up. And he puts a little bit of pressure on us and keeps putting the pressure on us until we give it, until we finally say, God, I'm going to give it up. And then we give it up, and it's like, God, why did I ever, why did I ever want this in the first place? You know, and this is important for us. God replaces what we give up with so much more that we don't miss what we've been asked to give up. Always. Every time in my lifetime and every time in the, when I read the biographies, every time they gave up something, God gave them more than they gave up. All through my lifetime, everything I give up, God gives me more than I give up. Which is why it's getting easier to surrender. Because I'm starting to get smart. God, you, you say give something up and you give me so much more. I, I still have a lot of stubbornness in me, but I'm learning. We need to learn to be able to say, God, you're going to give me. God wants to bless us. A problem with most of us is, even as Christians, is we think God's up there with a little eyedropper dripping blessing on us. You know, and many people will go, you know, God says, whoops, I gave you, I gave you two drops instead of one. Now you can't have a blessing for a while. Many people will think that way. God is so stingy that I'm not going to get blessed. God wants to bless us. The only one keeping him from blessing us is ourselves. Because we won't surrender to what he asks us to surrender to. And God says, I just want you to give up what you want for what I want. And the more we do that, the more we're going to be blessed. And the more we get blessed, the easier it is to surrender in the future. Because we start getting, oh, God, you're not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and all those guys in the Old Testament. You're my God. You are my God. This is important for us, and this is I've shared with you. So many kids grow up in the church, and it's their parents' God. Not that they're not saved necessarily, but they just have never committed to God because it's their parents' God. And there has to be a point where God becomes my God. My God, not somebody else's God, not the church's God, not, not my parents' God, not my grandma's God, not, not my, my children, your children got saved first, but my God, and follow him on it. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to always see your joy. Lord, teach us to surrender to you quickly and see your blessings. Lord, if there's anybody listening on this that doesn't know you, we ask that today they will repent from their sin and turn to you and be saved, and that they will find a good church and start reading their Bible, and we just ask you to be with us all. Give us opportunities to speak with you and share you with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says 
the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.